It's the amazing Rico Bronia podcast with your host, Evan Roberts. In honor of this every two-year tradition of the New York Mets hiring a brand new manager, we present to you a Rico Bronia in which we attempt to rank the managers in New York Mets history. Isn't it fun every couple of years looking for a brand new manager? Isn't it enjoyable every couple of years having the same damn discussions about, I don't want a guy learning on the job. I want a guy with experience. But oh wait, I can't predict what this guy will be like as a manager. So we all offer these really strong opinions and have these opinions. But then at the end of the day, whoever they hire, we wrap our legs around them, we wrap our arms around them, and we hope for the best. And by April 10th, we're criticizing every pitching move they've ever made. So in my opinion, when ranking managers, when talking about managers, when analyzing managers, there are a few factors I look at. Number one is overachieving with the roster that you have, which is essentially how they hand out the Manager of the Year award every single season. It's not like they give it to the team with the best record and say, hey, that manager did a great job. Usually it's, what were the expectations for that team? Did they overcome those expectations? That guy's the manager of the year. And to a degree, when thinking about the 23 different guys that have managed the New York Mets, that's a part of it. It's not the whole thing, but it's a part of it. Like, what did you do with the talent that you had? Did you overachieve? Did you underachieve? Or did you kind of pull off pretty much what was expected of you? That's one thing I look at. Number two, I look at handling the egos in that room. The 1986 Mets featured a lot of personalities, a lot of crazy personalities. So, yeah, they were really good. Yeah, they won a lot of games. But I think when you look at Davey Johnson, and we'll spend some more time on him in a little bit, in my mind, and I didn't even experience it, I'm looking back at this as a historian, I give him a little bit more credit for handling those personalities and not letting things completely explode. It's different than Joe Torre in the 90s, but in a weird way, it's similar. Both had great teams, but both's biggest job was not necessarily a managerial move, per se, or handling your bullpen. It probably was more handling the egos of what you had. And then the third thing I tend to look at is that horrific managerial move that can almost put a black mark on your tenure as manager of the team. I'll use a non-Met example. As an example, Grady Little. No one thinks about anything Grady Little did as manager of the Boston Red Sox with the exception of one thing, and that was leaving Pedro Martinez in Game 7 of the 2003 ALCS way too long. So to me, when I'm analyzing all these managers, especially the ones in my lifetime, I do look at that, is there a move that jumps out at me that almost negatively affects how I view them? Now let's go over this. There were 23 managers in the history of the New York Mets. But for the sake of this, we're really only talking about 18 of them because there have been four interim managers who did not exactly get a full opportunity to manage the team. Back in 1967, there was a man named Salty Parker who managed 11 games that season. We are not going to analyze Salty Parker. Roy McMillan managed 43 games in 1975. We're not going to analyze him. Frank Howard, who recently passed away, actually got more of a sample size. He managed 116 games in 1983, but he, too, can't really analyze him. And this is the first one I remember, my first interim manager in my history, and that is Mike Kubich, who managed the team for seven games at the end of the 1991 season. I don't think they ever strongly considered giving him the full-time job. But for those four guys, Kubich, Howard, McMillan, and Parker, in fairness to them, 
We kind of put them aside. I also broke down the managers into two groups. Group number one, the pre-memory group of Met managers, which means I can give you some basic thoughts about these guys, but I didn't experience them. Casey Stengel, Wes Westrom, Gil Hodges, Yogi Berra, Joe Frazier, Joe Torrey, George Bamberger, Davey Johnson, and I even included Buddy Harrelson in this because while I sort of remember the end of Buddy, and I remember vague things about the end of his tenure, including, you know, it's been in the news lately about quitting WFAN spots. Bud Harrelson was doing it before anybody else, if you remember. I think Bud quit the Mets extra spot with Howie Rose because he was taking a beating with some of the tough questions that Howie was asking. And that's a testament to the greatness of Howie Rose because Howie Rose will tell you to this day, his favorite player growing up, Bud Harrelson. And he had to ask him very difficult questions during a bad season, and Buddy quit. And I remember that as a kid, as a seven-year-old. Like, whoa, Buddy Harrelson quit. So we will address those guys. I spoke to my dad a few days ago and said, Dad, I want you to rank the pre-memory managers. And he gave me a list. He kind of cheated a little bit, but (laughs) it's my dad's list, and I respect it. And we'll address it in just a couple of minutes. The second tier of managers are the ones I remember. The ones that I really remember. The ones where I was scoring games as they were managing the team. And those guys include, and I'll name the whole list, Jeff Torberg, Dallas Green, Bobby Valentine, Art Howe, Willie Randolph, Jerry Manuel, Terry Collins, Mickey Calloway, Luis Rojas, and obviously Buck Showalter. Carlos Beltran, is he on the list? Will we mention him at all? He was the manager. He never managed the game. So you want want me to rank him? (laughs) Maybe number one because he didn't lose the game. Maybe number one, because there's nothing to hate him about. So let's start at the beginning. Casey Stengel, I also feel, should almost be thrown out of this. Casey Stengel had a record of 175 and 404. He had a 302 winning percentage. Those numbers don't even sound real. That is Washington Generals kind of stuff. And he was brought in, and it's almost insulting to say he was brought in as a mascot, but he kind of was. He was an older guy at the time. The Mets weren't even trying to win in the early 60s. They were trying to bring in big names that used to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers or the New York Giants to get people to show up. So I feel awful saying, hey, let's rank them 1 through 18 or 1 through 19 because there were 19 managers that I've included on this list, by the way, just to be accurate about it. There were 2, 4, 6, 8, 9 in the pre-memory managerial list, and there's 2, 4, 6, 8, oh, wow, 9. So it's 9 and 9. It works out perfectly. I guess I've been alive for basically half or at least I remember half of the Mets' tenure. So it's 9-9, nine and nine, and then you got the four guys that we don't include. There's a part of me that doesn't even want to include Casey Stengel. Like, how the hell do we rank him? He wasn't there to try to win. But when I asked my dad, and I said, Dad, do me a favor. Can you rank all the managers? And I gave him the list of the guys that were pre-me, just to get his perspective on it. He did give kind of a a cheap answer, but a very interesting answer. He said... Number one, which I was stunned by, I assumed that my dad would repeat what Tom Severus said, what probably Joe Beningo would say, and that is, well, number one is Gil Hodges. That's not what he said. He put Davey Johnson number one. And I think that's really, really interesting because to a lot of the older Met fans, Gil's the guy. Gil's the guy you swear by. But the one thing I do understand about that, and I say this as like the historian, not the guy that experienced it, is that, like I mentioned earlier, Davey had a very difficult job. Davey Johnson had to deal with something that Gil did not. Number one, expectations. 
Let's face it. The Mets were close in 1984. They were close in 1985. Going into 1986, the year they won their second World Series, their more recent World Series, he had to win. There was expectations for him to win. Gil Hodges went into a year in which we still refer to them as the Miracle Mets. It doesn't make his job easy or meaningless or he didn't do amazing things. He did do amazing things. And he showed a lot of guts during his time as Met manager. But Davey dealt with the weight of expectations. And he also had to deal with that locker room. So my dad's response was very simple. Davey Johnson, number one. Gil Hodges, number two. And this is where he took the easy way out. Everybody else tie for third. (laughs) Which I guess when you think about the guys on the list, when you think about Bud Harrelson, disaster. You think about George Bamberger, disaster. Joe Frazier, Joe Torrey, disaster. They all fall real far down. Now, there's one other name, though, that he put tied for third that you have to analyze, and that's Yogi Berra. But my dad was telling me this recently, especially in Ed Cranepool's recent book that he wrote, that while Yogi Berra, and please, he is a great Yankee, he's a great American icon, we all love Yogi Berra. We are talking about him as a manager right now. But as a manager, the impression from Ed Cranepool, the feeling my dad has, I certainly remember Howie Rose criticizing the moves he made in the 1973 World Series, not pitching George Stone, going to Tom Seaver on short rest, that Yogi Berra is considered by a lot of older Mets fans a bad manager, that the Mets won despite Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra finished four games under 500, and like I said at the top, when you rank managers, in my mind, The third thing that can hurt you is the move everybody remembers. 1973 was 50 years ago. And if you ask Howie Rose or Gary Cohen or Joe Beningo or my dad about that World Series, the first thing they bring up is Yogi Berra effing up. So I get it. So despite... You know, the the Stengel, Westrom, Frazier, Torrey, Bamberger, Harrelson's loserness in terms of wins and losses, and it's bad, like they're all well under five hundred. Yogi Berra has that move that everybody remembers, and that's why he falls down to the bottom. So I was surprised by that. Now, keep this in mind about Davey Johnson. Davey Johnson has the most wins in the history of the New York Mets as a manager. He has won 595 games, and that is a record right now that feels pretty damn safe, especially since the Mets are starting over at manager. So whoever is the manager, you're starting at zero, and you need to manage this team. Forget about the success. you got to do it for a long time to get the 595. Davey was there for seven years. He had a 588 winning percentage, which is far and away the most wins. Like Terry Collins was the one that came close. He's actually second on the list. Terry Collins has a winning percentage under 500. So Davey not only won 595, he not only made the postseason numerous times, including winning a world championship, but he has a 588 winning percentage. And keep this in mind, and this is a fun one. The New York Mets have seven managers in their history with records above 500. Some of them are obvious. Some of them you'd say, yeah, I know that. The highest winning percentage, like I said, belongs to Davey Johnson, no surprise. The second highest winning percentage, when you think about it, it makes sense, is Willie Randolph. Mets won a lot of games in 06. Despite the collapse in 07, they still won more games than they lost. So he actually has the second highest winning percentage in the history of the franchise. You know who third is? Buck Showalter. 
<laughs> Think about that. Well, he did win 101 games in his first year here. And despite the failures of 2023, 543. That means Bobby Valentine is actually fourth, 534. But there were three other managers above 500. Two of them are considered bad managers in the history of the franchise. Number four is, uh, number five is Buddy Harrelson. And a part of why that makes sense is in Buddy's first year, or at least when he took over in 1990, they had success. They were in a little bit of a pennant race. And then 1991 was a disaster. So he finished 529 winning percentage. Then you have Gil Hodges, which makes sense because while 69 was amazing, 68 certainly wasn't, 523. And the last manager who is slightly above 500 <laughs> is a man who will live in the dustpan of Met history. And that is, believe it or not, Mickey Calloway. Mickey Calloway, two games above 500, 163 and 161. Now let's get to the list. The modern day I watched them list of New York Met managers. And I'm going to start at the bottom where it's very, very difficult. Now, you've got a lot of options for the bottom row. And to me, it came down to two guys. There were two guys I was wrestling back and forth with on who's going to be number nine on the list of managers I remember that I saw that I can rank. The two guys it came down to, and obviously that'll give away number eight because who I don't pick is slightly ahead, but that's okay came down to Jeff Torberg and Art Howe. Those were my two guys. And I went very, very back and forth about it. And things were actually very similar for Jeff Torberg and Art Howe. Why were they similar? Well, number one, both were successful managers elsewhere. I mean, think about that. You know, Jeff Torberg had success with the Chicago White Sox. Like, he won 94 games in 1990. In fact, he was the guy, and there's a, there's a phone call I found years ago, of Joe B., my longtime partner, calling Howie Rose on Mets Extra at the end of the 1991 season, saying the pipe dream is to hire Jeff Torberg. That's the guy we got to go get. So a successful, proven manager. Same with Ardell. Very similar. Also very similar in that the Mets had spent a lot of money, they had brought in star players, and we went into the 1992 season with expectations. The reason I put Jeff Torberg ahead of Art Howe, twofold. Number one, Jeff Torberg was so bad, he couldn't even get through his second season. Like in his second season, only 38 games in, <coughs> excuse me, only 38 games in 1993, Jeff Torberg was fired. Couldn't even make it. He was also the manager in the first 38 games of maybe the worst Met team I've ever seen. He was also the manager of the worst team money could buy in 1992. Think about the talent the Mets had. And remember, they lost 90 games. They brought in future Hall of Famer Eddie Murray. They brought in Bobby Bonilla. They had Howard Johnson. They had Dave Magadan. They still had Vince Coleman. They had a pitching staff that on paper was going to be led by, get ready for this, David Cohn, Doc Gooden, Brett Saberhagen, and El Sid Fernandez, plus an emerging young lefty named Pete Shurek. Like, this was supposed to be a really good team. And they lost 90 games. And the manager got fired just 38 games in a year or two. So the worst manager in my lifetime is not Art Howe. <laughs> He's the second worst manager of my lifetime. The number one worst manager is Jeff Torber. 
Now, let me get to Art Howe, because it is really eerily similar. Torberg had two stops before coming to the Mets. He was the guy we all wanted based on success. Art Howe was very similar. Now, while Art didn't have amazing success in Houston, he was a pretty competent manager with the Astros, but really where he became famous was managing the Oakland A's. The two years prior to joining the New York Mets, he managed Oakland to 102 wins and 103 wins. He managed that team to the fifth and deciding game of the American League Divisional Series. Granted, they lost, but still, he managed a team three years in a row into the postseason, three years in a row over 90 wins, two years in a row over 100 wins. And when the Mets brought Art in in 2003, we could all say what we want now. On paper, it seemed like a no-brainer. So I guess I understand the parallels and concerns to Craig Council. (laughs) Hey, Art was successful. What the hell happened? And also, pretty similarly to what befell Jeff Torberg, the 2003 Mets had a lot of talent on their roster. Roberto Alomar was on that roster. A returning Roger Cedeno was on that roster. Mike Piazza was on that roster. Jeremy Burnitz was on that roster. Future Hall of Famer was recently added Tommy Glavin. So they went into opening day with a Glavin lighter one-two punch. They had big names in the bullpen. Johnny Franco was still there. Armando Benitez was still there. Veteran Yankee Mike Stanton and Graham Lloyd were there. Like, there were high expectations for the 2003 Mets, despite the fact that in the previous year they lost 86 games. And despite the fact that some of those big names were there the previous year, specifically Alomar, Burnitz, and Cedeno. The big guy they added was Tommy Glavin. So there were higher expectations. Now, personally, I think 1992 had more expectations than 2003 if we're comparing them. And that's a slight part of why Jeff Torborg gets the edge. And the other thing, which benefited Art, is that he actually finished his second year. They actually allowed him. I think they told him basically with a month to go, we're firing you. Do you want to finish out the year? And Art showed a lot of class by doing it. Look, a part of Art Howe's problem here, and I told you that sometimes you think of the one bad move. You think of that one move that sticks out that you can't get past. With Art Howe, there was something that happened that it wasn't specifically a move. It was an innocent confession to the New York media. And that was when Art Howe revealed he did not know if Dontrell Willis was a lefty or a righty. Now, I was not in the room at the time. I was actually living down in Washington, D.C. at the time, watching the Mets on the MLB package. A flawed package at the time, by the way. And why it was flawed is they did not promise you every game. So every night when I got home, I would have to hope the Mets were on my MOB package. And I'd say about 75% of the time they were. But it was not every single game. There certainly weren't tablets for you to use. It was just on your TV. So I wasn't in the room when Art was asked this question and when Art made the confession. So I'm sure a writer could tell me, you know what, Evan? He was joking. He was just having fun. Whatever. The damage has been done, and it's been 20 years. And I ain't over it. Art Howe was so unprepared, he did not know. He did not know if Dontrell Willis was a lefty or a righty. So that's why I put him at number eight. So we've got Art Howe and Jeff Torborg, 9-8. So now I look at my list, I look at my remaining managers, and I see Dallas Green, Bobby Valentine, Willie Randolph, Jerry Manuel, Terry Collins, Mickey Calloway, and Luis Rojas. Where do I go? I'm going to go to Luis Rojas. Now, Luis Rojas at number seven could very well make us all look stupid. It is absolutely possible that the New York Mets 
will rue, I want to say they'll rue the day we fired Luis Rojas, but is there a chance that Luis Rojas goes on and manages somewhere else and is wildly successful? Absolutely. It is on the table. That we will look back at Rojas's time with the Mets and say he learned on the job here, and then he put it all together in Las Vegas with the ace, or wherever he ends up. But Luis Rojas had two years here. Year one, we all gave him a pass. Because remember, Carlos Beltran was fired with not a lot of notice, and the Mets were almost forced to just promote Luis Rojas, a hire that I was good with. Because my thought at the time was, you know what? He's been in the organization. He's young. He knows what he's doing. I think he had manager league experience, not at the major league level, but at the minor league level. And I was all good for promoting him. Let's see what he's got. Maybe this is the long-term answer. He's got the right genes, being the son of one of the great managers of the 90s in Philippe Alou. So let's see what we got. And 2020 was a pandemic season. The Mets had absolutely no pitching. It was abysmal. And I don't necessarily blame him for 2020. So really it comes down to 2021. A 2021 Met team that I thought was pretty damn good. It wasn't bad. Lindor was struggling in his first year in New York. But, but you did have Pete Alonso going out there hitting 37 home runs and having a nice bounce back season. And you had a team that was in first place for like 80% of the season. You had a team that was taking advantage of a mediocre National League East. A team that remained in first place all the way until August 5th. And then they absolutely collapsed. And granted, there were things that contributed to it, specifically Jacob DeGrom not pitching in the second half of this season. But when I think about what happened in August and September, some of it is on this manager. Being oblivious about what was going on in the locker room was on this manager. Whether it was the squirrel, raccoon, whatever the hell rat incident between Jeff McNeil and Francisco Lindor, he sounded clueless. Whether it was the thumbs down with Javi Baez and Francisco Lindor, he sounded clueless when he joined me and Craig on a weekly basis. And yeah, I gave him a beating. And do I feel bad about it? I Maybe I should have been more respectful. I tried to be respectful. But I was representing Met fans and asking tough questions. And I don't think he did well in answering those tough questions. Now, I'm man enough to tell you, I think that's a learning experience for him. That he will be a good manager someday. But that's a part of why we all fear the rookie manager. We fear the rookie manager because you're learning on the job. And Luis Rojas was forced to learn on the job. I give him an absolute pass for 2020. I don't for 2021. I don't give him a pass for the collapse going from being in first place every day till August 5th, and then forget about not being in first place again. They weren't in a pennant race. They got buried. They completely, utterly fell apart. They were 9-19 and in August. They were 11-16 and in September. Do the math on that. 20-35 and over the final few months. And I put a lot of that and his lack of awareness about what was going on in the locker room on Luis Rojas. Now, next up. Let's see, how many guys do I have left? I have six guys left. My bottom six, or top six, Met managers of my lifetime. So I'm going to give you the two guys I debated. I debated Dallas Green versus Mickey Calloway. And this may surprise a lot of people because we talk about Mickey in a very negative way. But I'm actually going to say Dallas Green was worse. Now you may ask, come on, Evan. That's not fair. Look what he had. He had such a young team. How do you blame Dallas Green? Where's your angst? Towards Dallas Green. Okay, a couple of things. Dallas Green spent parts of four seasons managing the New York Mets. 
He cleaned up the end of the 1993 season after Jeff Torberg was fired, and they were bad. Well, they lost over 100 games. but So he basically continued what Jeff Torberg was doing. They had a very surprisingly good 1994 season before the strike befelled us. They were only three games under 500, and they were clearly overachieving. And then in 1995, with slightly higher expectations, they also played reasonably well at 69 and 75. So the middle two years of Dallas were surprised. I don't want to say good because they were under 500, but I remember as a kid being like, wow, we're overachieving with all our young players. And then in 1996, we did have expectations. There was this hope that the Mets could build on the close to 95. So the close of 95, which was also an affected year by the lockout, was a very strong close. They actually finished the year 33-23 and 23 over the final two months, which is amazing for that team. And as a kid, I was all pumped up that they finished in second place. I thought it was a great accomplishment. So 1995 was a strong close, and there was hope for the future. Rico Bronia emerged. Todd Hunley was starting to put it all together. Edgardo Alfonso was emerging as a nice young player. They had made the trade for Alex Ochoa when they traded Bobby Bonilla away. We were all pumped up about him. Bill Pulsifer looked pretty good in his time at the major league level. Jason Isringhausen looked really good in the 14 starts he made. And then we were all pumped up for the emergence of Paul Wilson. So we got Izzy looking good. We got Pulse looking good. There was a lot of hope going into the 1996 season. And right from the get-go, 1996 was just an absolute disaster. Outside of three players, Todd Hundley broke the catching home run record. Bernard Gilkey had an amazing year, and Lance Johnson had an amazing year. But Jason Isringhausen took a major step back. Pulsifer missed the entire year because he was hurt, and Paul Wilson was bloody awful. So really what made 96 a failure was the young pitching. Now you can say, how's that Dallas's fault? If you remember 95, he was pushing Pulsifer in a way that was almost uncomfortable. For as much as we want managers to push young starting pitching, Dallas Green was almost abusing Bill Pulsifer. In his major league debut, he pitched seven innings and allowed seven runs. He threw a ton of pitches. And so you wonder if that negatively affected Pulsifer. And I don't think Dallas Green was the right guy with that young staff. I think he almost abused that young staff. So the reason I put Dallas ahead of Mickey is not about wins and losses, it's not even about expectations because I thought he did a pretty good job with his expectations. It was that you could look at the demise of Generation K and not blame it on Dallas Green, but at least say he contributed to it. And that's why Dallas Green was worse than Mickey Calloway. As far as Mickey Calloway is concerned, Mickey Calloway <laughs> was not as bad as maybe we remember him. It sounds weird to say, but it's sort of true. So Mickey Calloway manages the Mets in 2018-2019. It was right after they made the decision to move on from Terry Collins, which is probably the right decision. He's a 43-year-old manager. He's a pitching coach. And similar, there are a lot of parallels with the guys that are close, similar to Dallas Green having these young guns he needed to develop, our thought with Mickey was he can help fix some of our young guns. He can help contribute to the health of Noah Syndergaard and Steven Matz and Zach Wheeler and Jacob DeGrom and that Mickey Calloway being there is really going to help this team. It's going to be a positive contributing factor. 
And you know what's funny? Based on results, you could argue, well, it worked. Steven Matz had his best season as a major leaguer that year. He made 30 starts and had a sub-4 ERA. Noah Syndergaard, when he pitched and he made 25 starts, was pretty good. Zach Wheeler was great. Zach Wheeler emerged in 2018, the first year of Mickey Calloway. Had a 3-3 ERA, made every start, and who could forget Jacob DeGrom? He was historically good. Problem was, they didn't win enough games. The problem was, they couldn't score any runs. The problem was, we got teased. Because if you recall, the Mets began the 2018 season at 11-1. and And we were giddy. I remember them sweeping the Nationals on a Sunday night. They won a game in 12 innings the same night as WrestleMania. I don't know why those two things correlate, but it was. And I was fired up. They're 11 and 1 and we're feeling good. They're 12 and 2 and we're feeling good. And then after that, it was just an out and out disaster. The Mets put together, I think the worst month I've ever seen. And we've seen some bad Met teams. That June that year when they went an ungodly 5 and 21 was this incredibly helpless feeling because even though they had blown their 11 and 1 start, I couldn't have imagined that they would give it all the way back. Because think about it, by the time we hit July 1st, the Mets were 16 games under 500 and 14 and a half games out of first place. So how much of that do I put on Mickey Calloway? A little bit. 2019 was also a weird season because the Mets were good enough to make the postseason, but they had so many games that they just out and out blew. Was it all on Mickey Calloway? Some of it was. Some of his bullpen handling handling wasn't perfect. I think Edwin Diaz contributed a huge part to that because he collapsed in the second half of the season. But this team won 86 games, which is rare. The Mets don't have a lot of seasons. Think about this. The Mets don't have a lot of seasons where they're good but just not good enough to even make the playoffs. Either we suck like 2023, fall apart like 2021, or we just flat out make the playoffs like 2015, 2016, and 2022. We do not have a lot of seasons where we're like good but not good enough. And 2019 fit the bill. They won 86 games. But the reason it didn't feel like they won 86 games is because 2019 will forever be remembered in my mind as the year of blown games. They blew so many games. Now, why Mickey Calloway is generally ranked lower than the way I ranked him is because we include the fact that he's a real douche. We include the fact that he's a bad guy. Look, I'm ranking managers. So if I'm ranking them based on if they're good guys, he's probably last. But I'm just factoring in. I'm trying to. I'm trying to be fair about this. What was he as a manager? And what he was as a manager was a bad year after a great start and then a year in which you won a lot of games, not enough, because you blew too many down the stretch. Normally, that's not enough to lose your job. That's usually not the case. But it was in this case, and Mickey Calloway finishes now at six. So that gives me five managers. Or I should say four managers. He finishes at five. I've got the four top managers of my lifetime. And let me read off the names just so you remember, and then we'll go through it. We have Terry Collins, Jerry Manuel, Willie Randolph, and Bobby Valentine. So Manuel and Randolph, let's get to them, because Collins and Valentine are going to finish ahead of them, in my opinion. Willie Randolph was not a bad manager. Willie Randolph did not have a losing season as a New York Met manager. Let that marinate. Like, how many guys 
in the history of this franchise could say that. They could say, I managed the New York Mets, and I never had a losing season. How many guys can say that? The answer is really only one other, and that's Davey Johnson, but there's a caveat to Davey. Davey had a winning season every single year until he was fired. He was fired 42 games in 1990, and he was 20 and 22. So do we count that as a losing season? Probably not. But similar to Davey Johnson, and I do think this is like a small kind of negative to Willie, and not as much to Davey because he did win a World Series. When that guy was fired, the team started playing better. When Willie Randolph was fired in 2008, and it's always remembered for when he was fired, it's always remembered for what time he was fired. I'll certainly never forget it because me, Beningo, we were out in California when Willie was fired. And yeah, the Mets should have done it a better way. But what I'll always argue is that the firing, as unfortunate as it was, worked. Because the New York Mets went on a run. And they played better baseball with Jerry Manuel as manager. With that said, playing better baseball in 2008 is not enough for Jerry Manuel to finish ahead of Willie Randolph. I'm sorry. Jerry Manuel overall as the manager of the New York Mets, was not good. <laughs> Let's be honest. He had a great close to 08, where they won almost 60% of their games. Let's not forget that. They were 55-38 and 38 after Jerry Manuel took over. And there definitely was a spark to the firing of Willie and the hiring of Jerry. Was there backstabbing involved? That's what I've heard, by the way, that there was. But again, I'm reacting to wins and losses. But I had a big argument with Chris Russo at the time. Because when Willie was fired, he was against it. I was for it. So we had an all-fair discussion. Hey, you fired Willie. What are you doing? And I said, hey, Chris, they collapsed in 07. They were meandering in 08. Sometimes you got to try something. I'm not saying it's fair, but sometimes you got to try something. And the Mets ended up finishing strong. We know they missed the playoffs and sort of had a carbon copy of the previous year. But I remember running into Dog at Sirius because he had been gone by the time this season was over. And he said, I told you about Willie. And I said, no, I think I was right. The Mets got back into the race. They won 55 games after he took over. Like, yeah, it didn't work in terms of making the playoffs, but they were 17 games above 500. So I'll argue to this day, as unfair as it felt for Willie, the firing worked and that it sparked the team. Problem for Jerry is that 2009 featured high expectations and they lost 92 games. That's the problem. That's, that's the big problem. They go out and they add Francisco Rodriguez. They go out and add JJ Putz. They open up City Field. They lose 92 games. 2009, and we talked about it when we were doing our pod on most disappointing season in New York Met history. That was a part of the discussion because it was a very disappointing year in Met history. That was up there and he's a part of it. The other thing he's a part of is the following season. What does anybody remember about 2010? Well, I'll tell you something about 2010. In 2010, on July 6th, the Mets were 10 games above 502 games out of first place. They were in a pennant race. And then, like Met teams of the past, they absolutely collapsed. They had a 9 and 17 July. They had a 12 and 16 August, a 12 and 15 September. And by the time we got to I would say early August, you could turn out the lights. They were done. <coughs> so to go from being 10 games over or two games out of first place to completely collapsing and finishing under 500, that was it for Jerry Manuel. So Jerry really had a good second half of 2008, a disastrous 2009, 
and a good half of 2010, and that was it. See you later, Jerry Manuel. Now we've got our big three. We have got Willie Randolph, Terry Collins, and Bobby Valentine. So it's tough because Willie Randolph, when he was here, and he was here for two and a half seasons, from a wins and loss standpoint, it's tough to argue. The Mets won a ton of games in 2006, one of the best teams of our lifetime. They did collapse in 07. How much of that is on Willie? A little bit. And then he struggled in 08 to the point where the Mets finally decided, let's make a change. Here's what hurts about 06 for Willie that Terry Collins doesn't have and Bobby Valentine doesn't have. When the New York Mets won those two pennants of 2000 and 2015, they did it with low expectations. They didn't do it with a belief that the Mets were going to win the pennant. We did not go into the postseason thinking, boy, they better win the pennant. We did more so in 2000 because we had been close a year earlier. But even then, you kind of looked at Atlanta and said, we're not as good. We'll give it our best try, but we're not as good. Fortunately, the Mets got lucky. The Braves got picked off by the Cardinals. Bada boom, we're in the World Series. But my point is, going into those postseasons, we were not considered to be favorites. The problem Willie has is that in 2006, despite the injuries, despite El Duque, you know, tearing his calf or whatever he tore as he's jogging in the outfield before the playoffs are about to begin, despite the fact that Pedro Martinez was a non-option, despite all that, the Mets went into the postseason in 06, not just as favorites. They went in as monumental favorites. It was the only time in our lifetime, Mets fans, unless you remember 86, you remember 86? Okay, it's different. You remember 88? Fine, it's different. It was the only year of our lifetime where the New York Mets went into the postseason as monstrous favorites. Think about what the National League was that year. No other team won more than 88 games. The Mets won 97 games that year. The next highest win total in the NL was 88 by the Padres and Dodgers. 83 by the Cardinals. 85 by the Phillies who didn't even make the playoffs. So when we played the Dodgers in the first round, it was a, you better beat this team, and we did. When they played the St. Louis Cardinals in the NLCS, an 83-win team who barely made the playoffs, the expectation was, we better beat this team. And there were moves from that NLCS that still haunt me. Now, I'll give you one, and this one is a, it's one of those 50-50 moves, I have to admit. I argue about it. I said it to my dad at the time at Chase Stadium, but I also admit all these years later, I see both sides. Um, I understand why Willie made the decision he made. But Cliff Floyd as a pinch hitter versus Tom Glavin to lay down as a lay down a bunt as a pinch hitter bothered me in the moment. Because when Cliff Floyd came up in that spot with two on and nobody out, trailing by two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning of Game Seven, I feared a double play. Now maybe Willie was envisioning a three-run home run. But I was fearing because he can't run. There's a reason why Cliff was coming off the bench. I feared a double play. Cliff struck out looking, thank God. And then you could argue the inning would have played out the same way. Jose Reyes lined out the center field. I'll never forget it. Off the bat, I thought, oh, my God, this could go up the alley. Jim Edmonds got a good jump on it. Leduca drew the walk. And then that set up Carlos Beltran, obviously, striking out with the bases loaded. So even if I got my way and Glavin lays the bunt down, second and third one out for Reyes, Line out the same, assuming it plays out the same way. I know it, you can't assume it. I'm just trying to rationalize it. 
The other decision, which I understood, but I was sick as it was happening, was Aaron Heilman coming out for a second inning in Game 7. He didn't trust Billy Wagner. Now, I didn't trust Billy Wagner. So I admit, like at the time, I was getting it because I my trust on Billy Wagner was gone by that point. But Aaron Heilman coming out for the ninth in a 1-1 game, if you're not using your closer then, a future Hall of Famer in Billy Wagner, then what does that say about how you feel about Billy Wagner? And we know what happened. Heilman strikes out Jim Edmonds, gives up a single to Roland, Yachty hits the home run, good night. So those two things just they stick out in my memory. But what's tough for Willie is they lost a series they could not lose. They could not lose that series. If they win that game, where are we ranking him? Is it the same for me? Is it still behind Terry and Bobby? Maybe. Maybe it still is because all they did was fulfill their expectations. But Game 7 and losing that series in general, and you could argue they lost that series in Game 2. Let's not forget. I mean, the Mets had Game 2 in their back pocket. They had a 6-4 lead in the seventh inning of Game 2. They're about to go up 2-0. And to be fair about this, the other reason why they lost this series in Game 2 is not just because they lost Game 2 and they had a lead in it before Scott Spezio hit that triple against Guillermo Moda, but that's where he lost faith in Billy Wagner. Think about this. Billy Wagner came in with tie game in the top of the ninth inning of Game 2. Right? Very similar to tie game, top of the ninth inning, Game 7. And that's when Sotoguchi hit a home run off of him. And that's when he also imploded because he gave up another double to Scott Spezio, another base hit. He gave up three runs that inning. He had to pull him out of the game. He couldn't even get through the ninth inning. Mets are down 9-6. That's it. They lose. So a part of why they lost Game 7 or a part of why Willie stuck with Aaron Heilman for a second inning in Game 7 goes directly back to what happened in Game 2. So Willie Randolph is number 3. So let's get down to TC and Bobby. I don't think it's close. I got to be honest with you. I don't think it's close. And I mean this with as much respect for Terry Collins as I can. I was very tough on Terry when he managed this team. I don't overall think he was this great, brilliant manager. But Terry Collins accomplished something like that I am still so thrilled I was able to witness as a Met fan. You know, even though would I scream and yell about his bullpen management, sure. Did he not have four losing seasons before it was finally put together in 2015? Sure. But I think his fiery personality, his handling of that locker room, and it was not easy, especially with that Matt Harvey situation towards the end of the season. The emergence, the reemergence of David Wright, keeping that team together as they were really bumbling before they made the trades for Uribe, Kelly Johnson, and Yoannis Espinas. He deserves a lot of credit for that. He also... I thought pulled off one of the ballsiest managerial moves I could remember. And I give a golf clap to Terry Collins for this. Keeping Jacob DeGrom in game five of the DS against the Dodgers. As much of a DeGrom stand as I am, that's the night DeGrom became a god. That's the night he became the man. As great as he was in game one of that series, as solid as he was during that regular season, as much as he'd already proven in the two... Excuse me, the two years he was a Met, it was how he battled through Game 5 and the poise of Terry Collins in a winner-take-all game to stick with him. 
Because there were many times in that game five where I'm screaming at the TV, get him out, get him out. And Terry stuck with him. And he pushed all the right buttons in that game five. And that is not an easy game. See, it's the opposite of what we faced in 06. We were not expected to win that game. We are not expected to win that series. And a big part of why they won that series was the poise of Terry Collins. So despite everything else I've said about him, I call it like it is. I thought he put on, uh, <coughs> what do they call that when you put on something? Not a chess match. Whatever. He did something brilliant in Game 5. A master class. That's what I was looking for. He put together a master class in Game 5 against L.A. But I have a very difficult time forgiving him for Game 5 of the World Series. I know that City Field was rocking and they wanted Matt Harvey to come back out. They needed Matt Harvey to come back out and pitch that ninth inning. I was with my wife. I was with my dad. And I said to both of them, and I said to the people around me, I disagree. Jairus Familia needs a clean inning. Jairus Familia has now struggled in this World Series. He did not struggle in the LCS and the Divisional Series. Jairus Familia got a six-out save with like a microscopic lead against the Dodgers in Game 5 of the Divisional Series on the road. He pulled a Rivera. But now he's struggling in the World Series. I needed him to have that clean inning. So Matt Harvey comes out. I disagree with it. All Everybody in the ballpark wanted it. Fine. Fine. Once he walks Lorenzo Kane, Terry Collins has to get his ass out there and get him out of the game. That's the move that sticks with me more than any other managerial move in the history of this franchise, at least that I witnessed. So I give him a lot of credit for Game 5 with the Dodgers. I give him a ton of credit for even getting to the World Series. The Mets overachieved that year, not just winning in the playoffs, but even winning the division. Because that thing could have flown away from them in the middle of July before they made the key trades that they made for Uribe Johnson and obviously the big one for Ioannis Espinas. I give him a lot of credit for that season. That season, managerial-wise, is one of the best we've seen from a manager. That doesn't mean I can't ignore the four previous seasons or I can't ignore what happened in the World Series, but that move still haunts me. I'll give you, for everybody listening who is in favor of Harvey pitching the ninth, I'll give you let him start the inning. I disagree, but I'll give it to you. You cannot argue that once he walks Kane, you got to go to Familia to face Eric Cosmer. You cannot have Matt Harvey face Eric Cosmer. And he did, and he gave up a line drive that still is haunted in my brain to left field that kept cutting away, cutting away, and bounced. And boom, the Royals are all set up. 2016, another pretty good year by Terry. Overachieved, made the playoffs. I don't really have any managerial critiques from that wild card game. I did think about walking Gillespie to get to Bumgarner. <laughs> With the thought being, all right, Bumgarner's got a good stick. He may beat us. But maybe Bochi actually pinch hits for Bumgarner. I doubt it. We can get his ass out of the game. Thought about it at the time, but I don't hold that for Terry. And then obviously 2017 was a disaster. It was just time to go. Terry Collins, the second best Met manager in my lifetime. And then we get to number one. And I, I got to be honest with you, it ain't close. It is not close. Bobby Valentine was the best manager in the history of the Mets for my lifetime, excluding the guys that won titles. It was before me. I'm not putting Bobby above Davey or Gill, but for me, he's the best manager I saw. And it's very, very simple why. On a nightly basis, I truly felt like my manager knew more than your manager. On a nightly basis, I was confident that my manager was not going to be outmanaged. 
The other thing that Bobby managed to do is I thought he overachieved basically every year of his tenure until the very end when it was time to go. And sometimes it's time to go. Sometimes your clock expires. And and a part of me is surprised that with Valentine's personality, he even lasted as long as he did. There's a part of me that thinks that. Because Bobby Valentine managed for seven years, which is like an eternity in managerial years. So he takes over late 96 for Dallas Green. Okay, whatever. Finished 12 and 19. No big deal. Is what it is. 1997 was one of the great overachievements in the history of the franchise. They won 88 games. They won 88 games. They did that with a banged-up Todd Hundley, with John Olerud, which was a key, key addition. They did that with Fonzie being real good. But what was the rest of the team? Lance Johnson came back to earth, but Art Gilkey had a terrible year. Ray Ordonez was a liability offensively, as great defensively as he was. Carlos Baerga was washed. Like, how did they actually do it? Rick Reed emerged into a poor man's Greg Maddox. But look at the rotation. The rotation was Rick Reed, Dave Malicki, Bobby Jones, Mark Clark, and Armando Reynoso. Like, how the hell did the Mets win 88 games? I don't understand that. I don't know. I don't know how they pulled it off. They were sort of in a pennant race. They had some miracle wins late in the season. They weren't fully in the pennant race. It was more on the precipice of the pennant race. But they won 88 games. 1998 was the black mark. They trade for Piazza. Piazza was mostly great upon coming here. But they collapsed down the stretch of the season. And that can't be forgotten. They lost their last five games and blew an opportunity to make the postseason. So at that point, you know, after the overachievement, yeah, it's 88 wins, but now you start to question, okay, Bobby can do a lot with a little, but can he take that next step? And in 1999, it looked like they were collapsing again, which is sort of crazy to think about. In middle of September, they're getting swept by the Braves. They're getting swept by the Phillies. I was in Philly when they lost that finale on a Sunday afternoon. They had lost seven in a row. So despite being over 90 wins and having this great win total, they were collapsing again. And then Bobby and the Mets turned it all around by sweeping the Pirates, by winning the one-game playoff against Cincinnati, by somehow beating the Diamondbacks in the Divisional Series. That was a year where Bobby took that next step. And the team took the next step, obviously. It's not just all the manager. But they overcame the collapse. They make the playoffs. They shock the Diamondbacks. And then, to a degree, shock the Braves down 3-0, even forcing a sixth game. So that's now when the faith in Bobby has been restored. We know about what happens in 2000. There was a lot of luck involved not having to beat the Atlanta Braves, but they still won the pennant with a team that when you look at that roster and you look at the talent on that team, especially who was playing the outfield, it's kind of amazing that they got that far. 0-1 was a disappointment, but they finished strong and actually got back into a pennant race late in the season. 0-2, the disaster that it was. There is no move that Bobby made that sticks out with me as bad. In fact, the one big controversial move, I guess, was at the end of Game 5 of the World Series in 2000 when he continued to leave Al Leiter in. He let Al Leiter try to finish that game, Game 5 of the World Series. He had John Franco warming up in the bullpen, and he continued to allow Al to throw an ungodly amount of pitches that night. Al Leiter threw 142 pitches. And as I sat there that night at Chase Stadium, I do remember turning to my dad saying, 
you keep Allen. This is Al Leiter's game. So I don't know if that makes me a hypocrite because you think about Matt Harvey 15 years later, but in this case, I wanted Allen in the game. Now think back to what happened. It's a tie game in the top of the ninth inning. Strikes out the first two guys he sees, Tino and Paul O'Neill. He walks Posada, gives up a hit to Brocious. Two on, two out, top of the ninth inning, Luis Rojas at the plate. Did you really want Al Leiter out of the game? Like anybody out there, were you, were you screaming at the TV or at the ballpark, get Al out? I didn't want Al out. I wanted Al in. And I've said that to Al Leiter to this day. You're the one guy I trusted. No offense to John Franco. It was just more, this is Al Leiter's game. I trusted Al Leiter in that spot. And he gives up the roller to Luis Rojas up the middle. Luis Rojas. Luis Soho. <laughs> Luis Soho up the middle. So for me, Bobby Valentine, number one. Now, you may say to yourself, but you left someone out. You left out Buck Walter. There's a reason I left out Buck Walter. And I do this with presidents all the time. I need time. I need, <laughs> I need like a year or two to digest it. To see how I feel about it. To see, like, does a year removal from Buck or two years removed from Buck change how I view where he ranks in Met history? Because I do think what affects these rankings, and I say this all the time about seasons, and I feel this way about managers, is what happens next. Who is the next Met manager? What is the next Met manager? How do they do? What do they do? What's the results? Like, if the Mets win the World Series in 2024, doesn't that hurt Bucks rankings? <laughs> if we're being honest with each other. So if you want to include Buck in your very own rankings, when you email us at therecob at gmail.com, be my guest. But I like to give it like a deep breath. So I'll make you this promise. One year from today, November 2024, we will have a very quick amendum to this list that I created and I will place Buck Showalter somewhere on this list. I need a year. I need a year to let it digest and let it breathe. But we do appreciate you listening to this little bonus edition of Rico Bronia. Coming up in a couple of days, we are going to preview the starting pitching market. We go deep into what starters they can add via trade, what they can add via uh, free agency, and what they already have. A very deep look into starting pitching. And a lot more Ricos along the way, especially when there's breaking news. As this offseason begins, we appreciate you listening and downloading. You can email anytime, thericob at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Rico Bronia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Rico Bronia podcast. It's amazing, isn't it? Make sure you download it now to keep it on you at all times. <laughs>